Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Mark Leonard, Director of ECFR. And I'm Susie Dennison, Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR. And together we're moderating an episode of our summer series, The Great Reset, where we'll be looking at the special relationship between the UK and the EU and the prospects for rethinking the UK's relationship with Europe. And we have a very special guest for today's episode, Philip Rycroft. He was Permanent Secretary of the Department for Exiting the European Union from 2017 to 2019, where he was Leading all aspects of, of the British government's preparations for Brexit and is intimately familiar with all the ins and outs of the EU-UK relationship. But before taking on that role, he had a, a lot of very important positions within the British government, within some of the devolved administrations, but uh, I think even uh, spent some time in Brussels working for Leon Britain in his cabinet. Exactly. Very glad to be with you. So I did two years in, a, in the Leon Britain cabinet, 95-96, and very much enjoyed it. Great. And since you've left the civil service, you've been spending a lot of time advising businesses and other organisations about Brexit and how to, to negotiate with this, this new reality that we're living in. Yeah, I've done a bit of that, but also trying to think through what happens next with the United Kingdom. That's partly about the United Kingdom as an entity itself, the future of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland within the UK. But the UK in this post-Brexit world, how does it move forward having taken this really momentous decision? Uh, And there's still, uh, in my view, quite a lot of ground to cover before we get an answer to that question. Great. So in the first episode of the series, we looked at some of the opportunities which the current moment affords, whether it's the war in Ukraine, the fact the Windsor framework's been agreed, shifting public opinion in the UK, the prospect of, a, of an election in the UK and a European election in the EU, and how that creates a, a moment where people can think about this in, in a completely different way to the reality for most of the last seven years. So if you kind of look forward um, beyond Windsor framework at uh, what kind of new relationship might look like, what do you think the, the biggest areas of opportunity are? It's an absolutely central question, Crillian. Firstly, just to say the Windsor framework was a significant moment. The the hobble at the Northern Ireland Protocol, the doubts about the sincerity of the United Kingdom government meeting its commitments was just such a a hold-up to anything sensible happening in that space. And the fact that uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak committed his political capital to sorting that out, I think, was quite significant. We might have heard the last of the Northern Ireland Protocol. This is a dynamic uh, thing. This is completely unique. There's nothing quite like it anywhere. And there will be more issues uh, down the track. But it was a precondition to sort of opening up the curtain to something that might look a little bit different. I think this is this is just so important for the future of the United Kingdom. It's important for the EU and for the, uh, the U- UK's place in the wider world as well. The risk is that we're sort of a bit stuck We can't go backwards. There is no feasible way that we can uh, undo the debates that led up to the 16 referendum and the result of that. Prospects of rejoining the EU as a a, a full member, I think, have receded uh, into quite a distant future. It might happen, but it's not going to happen any time soon. So we can't go backwards. But moving forward, the choices that the UK has got are not enviable choices. There's no obvious route forward 
um, that addresses some of the self-evident harms that have been done uh, by Brexit um, and sorts the problems in the body politic within the United Kingdom. So for an incoming Labour government, if there is a, a change of government at the election, this poses a really tough strategic challenge. So what, what, how would you, if you were sort of trying to come up with a taxonomy of the, the biggest, knottiest sets of issues, how does it look from your perspective? Well, at the heart of this, and it's the point that it bears repeating pretty much endlessly, um, we have created this huge new set of bureaucracy that uh, intervenes in the trade uh, between the UK and the EU. The EU is our major market, both for uh, export and for imports. Um, and you know, far from Brexit being a deregulatory adventure, it has been a highly regulatory adventure and putting in place all of those non-tariff barriers. The, the, the mistake that a lot of Brexiteers and others made, I think, was to think about trade in terms of tariffs, but tariffs is the least of it. It's the non-tariff barriers that have impacted that trade. And that is a condition now of the UK being a third country. And you can't unravel that very easily. There are mitigations, clearly. And uh, there's things that you could do, sort of build goodwill, reduce some relatively minor but important problems like um, travel for uh, for musicians and artists, school travel, recognition of professional qualifications, getting back into the science programme horizon. These are things that could be done but they don't address the core issue, which is the UK being outside of the single market. Now, for Labour, it seems to me that does pose a very big challenge indeed, because they to accept you go back into the single market, accepting the four freedoms, uh, again, that as a political ask for them, I think is not... Uh, feasible in in the near future. So do you step part way into that saying, well, we'll stop this divergence of regulation. We will essentially be a rule taker from Brussels, but with no influence over the way those rules are made. That's a very, very uncomfortable place to be indeed. But that that is is something that they're going to have to think through as to how far down that track do they go. Just let me give you two instances where uh, in a common sense would say you jettison the post-Brexit creation of extra regulation and you go back to what we had. So uh, you dump UK reach in terms of chemicals regulation. And even if you don't go back into EU reach, you essentially mimic that and accept all of the uh, permissions that come through that. The UK conformity assessment marking, you drop that because it's just an additional expense on business. And you stay essentially unilaterally say, well, we'll stick with the UK CE marking. But this is sort of like unilateral disarmament. Yeah. Um, so you you accept um, the way that the rules are made, you accept what comes out of Brussels, but you have no say in the creation of those rules or indeed in the implementation of them. It's not a comfortable place to be. And how much of it is a sort of binary choice between, because the way it's uh, been seen is either you're in the single market or you're outside of the single market. And the reason why it's politically impossible to join the single market, as you said, is the four freedoms, no political party is going to go into the next election saying that free movement will come back in its kind of entirety. Are there ways of breaking it down so that you don't have that kind of binary choice? Well, this has always, I think, been um, you know, one of the, the, the sort of the nub of this is the, if you think about the, the how the EU functions, uh, you know, it's a legal construct, you're in the club 
and you get the benefits of being in the club, but you have to accept the rules of the club. And the four freedoms of the, of the single market are so fundamental, I think, as a negotiating proposition for uh, incoming UK government or indeed the existing government to go to Brussels and say, do you know what? We think we made a bit of a mistake. That's the first point. You've got to admit that this isn't working brilliantly from the UK perspective. We'd quite like to get closer to you. Would you mind just adjusting some of the rules here or there, particularly around freedom of movement. I think the UK rightly would get a rather dusty answer to that. You made your choice. You're a third country now. We want good relations with you, but there is no easy route back in which reduces essentially the bureaucracy that you've chosen to impose on yourself and indeed on us because of our exports have to go through that as well. So it is a, it, there isn't a simple way through that. Let's not forget that Cameron tried quite hard and you might say that... The, with the emergency break and... Well, with all the stuff he tried, you know, his yeah. deal that he did before the, the referendum. and the emergency yeah, we, break. Um, and I remember very vividly at the time, and it only took um, you know, one intervention from uh, Steve Baker for that to sort of crumble visibly. But, you know, maybe he could have got a bit more. Maybe in hindsight, people say he should have got a bit more. But the way in which the single market is constructed and particularly the importance of freedom of movement. So don't forget the EU is still in expansive mode. Others, are, you know, clearly other member states will not all like every aspect of it. You start doing sort of sweetheart deals with the UK and then you set off uh, demands elsewhere that may perhaps become uncontrollable. There is perhaps a negotiation to be had I don't think in the immediate future, but at some point, you know, within current political lifetimes, that says, well, there is a relation, a sort of outer ring sort of concept um, where you get close to being within the economic uh, domain of the EU, but under under different sort of conditions that we can't quite imagine now. And I think that's probably for the longer term. Sort of how you would potentially get there. You talked about sort of building good uh, political goodwill. Do you see ways in which um, the UK could be constructive on that front? Because, you know, as you've talked about, I think some of the acknowledgements of how we got here and the mistakes that, that, that have been made have been quite difficult. There are some sort of no-go areas around the, no, uh, the four freedoms from the point of view of the UK domestic debate. But do do you see sort of areas that the UK could be doing more in terms of um, implementing more carefully existing parts of uh, of the Windsor framework, and or, or do you think this is um, this is just about sort of building up trust in various different areas of the relationship to sort of open up the path for these sorts of discussions? Of course, there there is a lot the UK um, could need, indeed should do. It, it, obviously, the UK burnt through a huge amount of uh, political goodwill through all the shenanigans around the Northern Ireland Protocol, and that will take time to mend. And I think, you know, credit to, to Rishi Sunak that he's sort of embarked on that path. Um, but the UK re-emerging as a good and reliable international partner, obviously there's credit from the way that the UK's approached uh, the Ukrainian situation, and, and that's all, all for the good. But this requires consistent hard work, really. It's, uh, you know, we have this relationship through the trade cooperation agreement. The withdrawal agreement underpins that, particularly the Northern Ireland elements. We will be good partners. We will make those mechanisms function. Uh, we will look at the at the margins where we can to show that we're in our good intent by stepping into space, which may be slightly risky for us politically, but builds up trust with you. Obviously, the UK in it with its UN, G7 and so on, hats on, 
has a role to play internationally um, and where it can do quite a lot of signaling. The, the, you know, for all that we've left the EU, we haven't left Europe and you can't tow the UK out mid-Atlantic and pretend that we are a mid-Atlantic country. So there are plenty of opportunities to do that. And that's the way ultimately, at some point, the British Prime Minister will, you know, will be on the steps of Downing Street saying I've... You know, either in Brussels or in London, just had a, a very constructive meeting with the President of the Commission and President of the Council, whatever it is, and we have agreed on a way forward to to step up the relationship in, in, in a particular way. But that, it seems to me, expect the fences on that to be rushed because you need trust in interlocutors on both sides. You need the political air in the UK still needs to clear. And that is by no means a, a given at this stage. Um, even with the opinion polls swinging so strongly to you know, people saying, well, actually, probably we did make a mistake, the underlying demographic shift, the, the lock of the sort of the bitterness that the whole referendum debate engendered, it still hasn't been sort of prized off the system completely. Um, and we've just got to accept that that will, that will take time. And it, it will require humility. I'm use that word. I know it's not often associated with the political trade, but that's... Um, <laughs> Uh, it will require British politicians to say, well, we, you know, we're in an uncertain world. Um, we have to, uh, particularly as, as, as the world becomes more polarised between the big power blocks, we're now outside of that. We want to use that position creatively um, and we want to, you know, recognising that we're a good European citizen um, in that context. But it also means courage in the conversation with the people of Britain as well. Um, that actually, you know, we, we can't be world-beating everything. Um, and, and indeed, if you look at the balance, the UK has got huge strengths. Um, and I'm still, despite everything, lots of admirers around the world, a lot to build on there. But there are, there are some hard truths in all that, which are not yet as much a part of the discourse in the United Kingdom as they should be. And just, just one very other quick point on that briefly. But you think back, you know, put my historian's hat on, to post-Suez, huge shock to those who thought the UK and indeed France could operate in a particular way as uh, post-war, the, as the, still without the great empire presence for both of them. But the shock of the realisation, no, no, the world had changed irrevocably, setting in motion the thinking that led to Macmillan and Heath to say, well, you know, we have to come, we're coming out of empire uh, and we have to pivot. We have to make the pivot back to, to Europe, which answered the Dean Asherson quip about the UK losing a power but not having a role. And that became the vocation. In a way, Brexit takes us back, right back to that point. So what is the vocation of the United Kingdom in this post-Brexit world? And that requires quite a serious political discourse, which we're not yet anywhere close to. So there's question about roles and finding roles, but there is also the question about growth. I mean, the, both parties have put growth right at the top of their agenda. Labour Party's promised to to become the fastest growing um, member of the G7. Rishi Sunak's put forward some quite bold growth goals. We know as a fact that Brexit is costing us 5% of our GDP at the very least every year, year in, year out. What can you do which would kind of shift what the OBR says in terms of our relationship with Europe? Just on your 5%, 4%, whatever it might be, um, I'll tell you about 2018 when uh, the team I led, a brilliant team in the Department of Finance in the EU, 
put together the government's own impact assessment. Uh, by then, we didn't know what sort of Brexit we would have, but we put that together. You did a range of scenarios. We looked at all, and they were all negative. Yeah. Uh, and one of my proudest moments of being a civil servant in that very fraught environment that we did that work and it was published by the government. The government's never gone near that again because they know that they get a dusty answer. We, we also did some work... Uh, prompted by uh, the now sadly departed Jeremy Hayward's cabinet secretary, who called Project After, when we thought about what the UK could do to address its productivity challenge in the event of a no deal Brexit. And that work went on quite hidden from view, understandably. And the, the really interesting thing about it is that so many of the answers came back. It was about domestic policy that was actually not impacted by our membership of the EU. So it was planning, it was skills, it was infrastructure, it was industrial strategy. And the answer to the productivity challenge lies very much in those domains today. So if, you, if, if I was advising politicians now and all this, the work is pretty conclusive on this. Um, in order, it is it, you've got to deal with the uh, the interregional disparities in the United Kingdom. This is about productivity growth. Obviously, you want London and the southeast to grow, but it's about it's about leveling up. To, it's to essentially leveling up. Doing I mean that word, <laughs> that, that phrase seems to be disappearing from the lexicon at the moment. <laughs> but you've got to raise the productivity of Manchester, Newcastle, Birmingham, uh, Glasgow, and the rest. And the way that you do this, lots of work. Harvard just produced a brilliant study on this. It is about infrastructure connectivity. It's about people being able to travel. Um, between these conurbations, you build the agglomeration, the scale. It is about um, skills, but quite specifically about um, STEM skills and so on. It is about planning. It's not so much about regulation. This is one of the myths, I think, of the Brexit project that somehow there's a magic wand that you wave over um, the regulatory state and businesses. We can do what we like. Businesses absolutely need regulation to give them certainty and also to keep the cowboys um, at bay. Obviously, some regulation is not uh, brilliant. It could be more proportionate and so on. But the notion there is a sort of a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, you could somehow just burn up the UK regulatory state, is complete nonsense. But you could, I mean, there's a big question over, and actually, what, is the, the, what does the post-Brexit UK regulatory state look like, which we might want to talk about? But the, the sources of growth have long been evident. That's not changed. It requires hard work from government. It requires brave decision-making. It requires big investment. You're not going to get this in penny, you know, through penny packets, uh, stuff like the levelling up fund and so on. And I would add, uh, which is a, a, you know, another subject altogether, but an interesting one for me, it requires devolution of proper decision making to the localities and regions of England in particular. Um, I wanted to come in on what you were um, talking about in terms of the sort of the, the drivers of pro- productivity and you talked about skills. One of the areas which is often talked about as, as, as there being a kind of a desire on both sides um, from the UK point of view and the EU side um, is, is to kind of reinvigorate the ability to work together on uh, research and innovation. This is obviously sort of a key challenge for com- competing in the um, global markets from both sides, but it's linked to um, some of the tensions that you were talking about around the toxicity of, of the kind of the freedom of movement question. The fact that at the moment, uh, universities, businesses can't necessarily uh, supplement homegrown skills and what we're doing domestically by collaborating with uh, European firms and workers. Do you think we're moving towards a, um, an environment where 
that this could become a sort of a more practical conversation again? And if you do, does that sort of depend on some kind of visible cooperation on other aspects of the migration agenda? You know, we've seen Rishi Sunak push in the context of the European political community for more cooperation on, on, on managing illegal migration together. Yeah, do you see some kind of path forward there if, you know, we sort of scratch your back on this part of migration? Yeah, yes, I, I, I think that's right. I, um, first off, I've not met a scientist yet who says that it would be a good idea to stay outside the horizon. So that's a sort of stepping stone in this particular space. I, I think on on flow of people more generally, again, it's self-evident if you want to deal with the small boats problem, you've got to do that in collaboration with the French and the European authorities. That's just a sort of given. And if you look at the, the what they're doing, the UK government's doing on other trade deals with Australia, look at the demands the Indian government's making, if we're going to get a deal with them, uh, the, the movement of people of one sort or another does feature quite, quite highly. So there is undoubtedly a conversation that we could be having with the EU about reciprocal shift in policies that facilitates movements of particular groups of people. And how much of that is an EU-UK discussion as opposed to bilateral agreements with individual countries? That I, my guess on that one, that closely at it, but he, he, the instinct from the other side will be not too much bilateralism. Thank you very much, because we're still not quite sure where all this is going to go. So let's channel it through through the EU. It, it, it's quite in the whole immigration freedom of movement question. It's quite an interesting because if you look at the the boxes that Brexit was going to tick, control of border. You know, ostensibly, that's delivered on that, apart from the small boats, which wasn't really anticipated. But we do now control that border. We've equalised the immigration rules for EU and another, not obviously the whole of the world, but other parts of the world akin to that. We have a points-based system. The interesting thing about that in terms of debates that haven't quite been fully resolved yet is that when people saw the numbers... Obviously, you've got the Hong Kong and Ukraine addition to those numbers, but the sense that those numbers are unsustainably high, um, whether that's right or wrong, but the the underlying issue is that in spite of all of this, we haven't quite yet worked out what a long-term sustainable immigration policy might look like for the United Kingdom. So again, this is where the political process has made some promises, I think, that this would control immigration. We, we we are controlling it in a different way, but that hasn't necessarily meant that the numbers have dropped, um, you know, back to the tens of thousands that David Cameron once promised. So it seems to me that, a, you know, an incoming government, again, has still got that problem on its plate. Um, but there is a route, I think, that it would be perfectly sensible to say, well, you know, looking at this in the round, we still have these skill shortages uh, in the UK, um, we have a lot of people who um, in the EU who might like to make a contribution to the UK economy. Can we open up that discourse would be a, a sensible step forward. So uh, earlier on, you talked about the, the regulatory state and the British vision for the regulatory state. But in, when you were talking about it before that, you were talking about how the sort of global economy is changing. We're entering this period of industrial strategies where... Uh, a lot of our assumptions about how globalization would work have, have kind of changed fundamentally. And China is obviously at the heart of that. We're seeing a kind of a lot of the same debates in the UK that the EU and the US have been having about de-risking and diversifying. But one of the big differences is that they have huge domestic markets 
And part of the de-risking is about aligning that with their investment yeah. strategy so that they can... So where does Britain fit into this world where you're having vast subsidies being thrown around and all sorts of friction being introduced into the global markets? So I, I, again, absolutely fascinating question. And this is going to require some really smart political and economic and thinking. We're not going to make the weather on international uh, regulation, set in international regulation. The UK has always played a big part in that. It has, you know, has a good track record, but we are we are not going to be the, the setter of international regulation. There will be no London effect. There, People talk about the Brussels effect. No, no, no. It's just not going to be maybe in some very, very specific area, yeah. but it's not, and it, that's going to be driven out of the EU, California, probably increasingly China. And because of the nature of our market, where our businesses export to we are going to be a rule taker on auto aviation a whole bunch of other things where it's just not feasible you can create your own regulation or regulatory context for for the market because market as you say it's not big enough so where where do we take advantage and the promise always was well we can move we can be more agile we can move more quickly and you see soon that trying to get that on on the ai AI. front I know other domains that talk about services and fintech, AI, AI um, stuff like autonomous vehicles, clinical trials, and so on. Great, yeah, fine. And I think the, the there are opportunities in those spaces, but it does require the British regulatory state to know what it's doing and do it quickly. And in my experience, you're talking to somebody who was at one point a chief executive, the better regulation yeah. executive in, in, in the business department. The British regulatory state is not quite what some people crack it up to be. It's not the Rolls Royce. It's, um, it, you know, we spent most of our time worrying about the gold placing by the British regulator of EU regulation, yeah. paradoxically. So you've got, there's a lot of thinking to do there about how those opportunities are taken forward. The risk is that that biases the the centre of gravity of the British economy to where it's already very strong, the sort of London Golden Triangle. And what the places and parts of the country that lose out from that are the ones who are closer to traditional manufacturing, the auto sector, um, chemicals and so on, which are very much locked into European supply chains. So um, we we don't have a lot of choices in this space. And one of those choices is to is to seek to get an advantage in fast moving technologies. Um, but that will require very focused work from the government. And the thing that's missing at the moment, you talk to a lot of businesses across many different spheres. They'll say that, that what's happening in regulation generally from the UK government is a bit contradictory. This is an overarching narrative about deregulation. But if you look what's going on in many sectors, there's a lot of regulation, new regulation coming in. And there is no centre of gravity, as far as I can see, within the UK government that is controlling that at a macro level in a way that the business community in particular can interface with and recognise where there's given, where there's take. So that, we might get there, but we're not going to get there just because of Brexit. It's going to require focus, slightly boring in some respects, political work um, to get this stuff sorted out and to get the machine fit for purpose. So we cover quite a lot of ground, Philip. We're coming towards the end of our time here, but 
Are there things, you know, as somebody who had to deal with quite a few crises and bumps in the road over the last few years, are there any things that you think people are not paying enough attention to now, which could end up um, either creating new opportunities or major crises in, in Britain's relationship with Europe? Uh, if I could foresee the crises coming, then <laughs> uh, I would, you know, would would be surpassing my former self. By the nature of crises, they tend to catch most of us by surprise. There are things that are going to have to be watched very, very carefully. Uh, you know, simple stuff like obviously the online protocol we've talked about a bit, you know, managing the fisheries relationship, these things that can kick up little political squalls because there are sectors that are very vol- uh, vocal about these things. These things matter to particular communities very much indeed, not just in the UK, but uh, in the EU as well. So all of that is going to require... Uh, say so the management and the technicalities of the trading cooperation agreement, what flows from that with seriousness, with, with good intent. I think more broadly, it's the, the thing that as a citizen now that most annoys me is the ducking of these big questions about what this post-Brexit world means for the future of the United Kingdom in its own right and its place in the world, how we earn our keep. Uh, in a world that has got uh, it's got more difficult through our own volition. How do we manage that? How do we have those conversations with the people in the UK as well as our partners uh, around the world to reframe what it means to be Britain, the United Kingdom, British um, in the post-Brexit era? And that conversation is really only beginning. So in the same sense as mishandling Brexit has kind of defined the last... Uh six or seven years, there's a risk that mixed handling post-Brexit period could have the same uh, uh, political effect. It delays the day that we, we get to a more settled future. And let's not forget in all of this, you've, you know, the, what is the United Kingdom? The Brexit shock on this polity has by no means worked its way through. And I'm thinking now about Scotland, to a lesser extent Wales, obviously voted for Brexit, but still uh, the place of Wales in the United Kingdom is a, is, a, is a question that is live, and particularly Northern Ireland. I mean, the United Kingdom may not quite look like what it is today in 10, 15 years' time. And that too requires a pretty serious dialogue about what the options are, what that future might look like. Wow, okay. Well, I think that's a whole new series of podcasts that you've opened up there. There's one thing left to do on this podcast, though, and that is our bookshelf segment. So talk about the, the last book that I read, which isn't new by any means, but it's um, uh, Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South, which um, some of your listeners may have may have read. The first time, to my shame, that I'd read it. And as a, a disquisition into the, the inequalities perceived in in 19th century Britain between an industrialising north and a more pastoral south, the stresses of strains of a newly emerging capitalist economy, what that meant about individual identity, relationship between communities and individual lives and how they were transacted through that time. It is just wonderful. It's a great Victorian novel, but it says an awful lot about Britain today in a way that I I was just thrilled about. So for those who haven't read it. As we go into this new Victorian era. (laughs) Thank you very much, Phil. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know about it by heading to whatever platform you use to download this episode and subscribing to future podcasts. And while you're there, be one 
wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating as it will help bring other people to the podcast. We'll put links up to publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Philip Rycroft, Susie Dennison, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Chiara Brika, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Faro-Sarats. Mm-hmm.